Welcome to another product from Child and Family Partners, partnering with parents, families, and professionals for over a decade. Please visit our website for additional resources, and while you're there, join our mailing list. Visit www.cfpwyo.com. That's www.cfpwyo.com. Hi folks, it's Tiernan McElwain, the director with Child and Family Partners, here to talk about the needs of infants and toddlers. Uh, and I'm joined today by Jessica Schreiner, the uh, talented hostess with the mostess up in Wheatland, Wyoming. Jessica, you wanna say hi? Hello. How are the girls doing? Good, currently both sleeping. I don't oh. know how I managed that one, but that's pretty great. Wow, we're, I'm sure there's a story behind that and we're gonna to have to get to it. <laughs> there you go. And then Erica joining us, the course administrator extraordinaire, uh, joining us from San Antonio, Texas. How's it going, Erica? Good, good, things are good over here. And how are your two girls? Um, they are doing great. Um, pretty relaxed, haven't been a whole lot of fighting lately, so we're doing good. That's great. Yes. I'm just thinking we have four girls between the two of you, and then I have one. That's five. So let's see. Our girls com com all combined are 16, 12, 5, 3, and under 1. Yep. Did I get that right? Yes. All right. Mark the time and date. All right. There is a first time for everything. <laughs> well, thank you both for joining me again. I'm always excited to get a chance to talk to you two because... I feel like the parenting that you have each done is it shows a lot of reflection and a lot of time. We talked about this in one of our earlier uh, recordings, but a lot of worry and worry is a part of reflection and it leads to us doing some things differently. Uh, how's the worry level been lately with the pandemic for you two? Well, Wheatland, you know how we talked before, it's kind of like its own little Island. We really haven't, we don't have any COVID cases in Platte County. Yeah. It's been wonderful. And today we went out to eat for the first time. Oh, which great. Which was wonderful to sit in a restaurant and have lunch. It was just so out of the normal. That's and nice. And you could definitely tell Lacey, she was just right on board, super excited. We, we walked all the way there. We walked all the way home and then she crashed. Now she's out. <laughs> That's how you got her to sleep. Yes. <laughs> a death march. <laughs> there you go. I think it was more me marching than anything. I should be the one to sleep. She's not yeah. destroyed the whole time. Yeah. Erica, and the and how are you folks doing? There, think things are probably. I mean, I hear Texas is kind of opening up, but you got to be kind of leery about that. What's going on there? It it it, it has opened up. Um, and the, my stress levels kind of high. Um, you know, I have Alyssa who has pre-existing heart condition and I also have a pre-existing heart condition. So, you know, even just going out um, is scary. Uh, we did go out to eat and <laughs> I told them, I was like, okay, masks on unless you're eating. Um, if you touch anything, here's this big sanitizer. We just wanted to get out of the house and do something. 
but yeah, it went really well. Um, but it's not something that I want to do every day. So yeah, we're still trying to keep our distance. Right. Have you been able to make it to a pool yet? Um, no, not yet. Not yet. Hopefully it's, in yeah. the future. Hopefully, yes, because yeah. it's like a thousand degrees outside every day now. It's like yeah. mid mid to high nineties. So yeah. Wow. Well, interestingly, the things that each of you have mentioned are addressing needs, uh, our own needs as well as our children's needs. And it, what's fascinating to me about this when I started kind of looking into these was that it's for me, it was really easy to see the needs of an infant much more so than it is to see my own needs. For example, uh, infants tend to act on their needs uh, without thought and without uh, kind of uh, self-assessment, obviously. It's not like they're thinking, hmm, I have this pain in my stomach. I think it's mommy's fault. It's time for me to get mad at her. Uh, that might be more likely to come from a toddler or a preschooler because we have the intervening ability of thought. Uh, but as an infant, we have only the sensation and the response. And so it's easy to start with infants, at least for me. And I would encourage both of you to think about uh, your girls in terms of their time as infants with infants and toddlers. But in particular, let's start with infants. And I think Erica it would be really interesting to think about the needs as it, as it goes to Alyssa, because she had those early surgeries, there were hospital stays, there was medical involvement, and all, all of that had to be coupled with you figuring out how to meet her needs on a daily basis. So uh, we'll talk about these five needs that infants have uh, in regards to both how it can impact or how they can be met with a child who's got some medical issues, and then with other children who may not have as be as medically involved. So I appreciate, again, both of you being willing to join because I, I think we get so much out of these discussions. But let's talk about the first need, and Jessica has already got two kids meeting that need right now. Our first need, uh, not necessarily in any kind of order, uh, but what I listed first on our screen was sleep. Uh, obviously, if uh, we don't have enough sleep, we can't function, uh, we can't develop, we can't engage, we can't relate. Uh, sleep is an obvious need for us as animals. Um, and you, you referenced, Jessica, that you've got both the girls sleeping at three and a few months old. And uh, I know Lacey is kind of figuring out that maybe she doesn't need a nap so much unless she really gets worn out by a death march in a stroller. Right. And how has it been, especially when you've got these two girls uh, at these different ages, how has it been working the sleep routine at your place? We have not had a routine, especially yeah. since I've been a stay-at-home mom. There's absolutely no routine going on in my house. I'm trying, though. For the last, like, four days, I've actually got her to go in and take a nap, and it started with her getting a new bed. She got a twin-size bed, and she thinks it's great. Oh. So, and the first day I had to lay with her, and then the last couple of days I've got in there, she's taken like four stuffed animals and she has all four of them in her arms and she kind of just sat there and talked and played with them until she fell asleep. So, and it's just touch or miss in bedtime routines. It's, I never know. It, she could go to bed anywhere from eight o'clock to 10 o'clock. It just depends on the day. Yeah. At that age, you know, just around three, they tend to have such a wide range of attention abilities, you know, or, or physical um, kind of 
stamina. <laughs> and sometimes it can be worn out relatively quickly and it's unsure, we can be unsure why. And other times it seems really easy <laughs> to, right. to keep going all day. Uh, what do you see from the, your infant in terms of how do you know when she's tired? Well, pretty much anytime she eats, she sleeps. Yeah. <laughs> it just kind of go hand in hand. But I mean, today she was up for quite a while. I bet you she was wide awake for a few hours, just hanging out and happy. But I can tell if she doesn't sleep enough at night and she doesn't get one good nap in the middle of the day, she's restless. And you can just tell just unhappy. That's the first thing that I know when she starts getting super cranky, that's what she needs. She needs to sleep. But then she gets to the point where she can't sleep and she'll sleep for 10 minutes and wake right back up. But she just can't rest all the way. Yeah, that's really interesting that we have infants at that age. This is fascinating. Food and stimulation are two, and those are two other needs we're going to get to. But those two needs, when they are addressed, tend to help uh, an infant sleep. And so yeah. food obviously comforts the body and comforts our entire uh, system, our brain included, and releases dopamine for us to kind of get happy. As, and then you have stimulation, which also, because of what we call novelty, uh, a somewhat new experience, and that's part of why Lacey's so tired today, because she had such a, a different sensory and physical experience in the hike to the restaurant. And now she's tired because she saw so many things, she experienced so many things, she felt so many things, even sitting in a stroller, this can happen. And that just tires out the young ones because they only have a certain, you know, a certain amount of capacity for information coming in and then they need to take a break. So really good points about how food is an essential component many times for infants to sleep. And I know for me, when our kids were really young, that was a focal point for me, uh, partly because I had this just insane desire to sleep through the night as a father. <laughs> I could not, I needed my sleep and I could not go without it. And I was a little bit selfish about it. So I would make sure that they were loaded up on food by about eight, eight thirty at night. So they would sleep as long as possible. <laughs> Erica, how was it with Alyssa when, you know, you've got a child that's got some medical conditions and you know, you're, you're hoping that she can get some sleep. You're hoping you can get some sleep. It's stressful. Uh, what was it like for, how did you know when she was tired? Did she just fall asleep or what did, what happened with her? Yeah, she was, you know, I got really lucky with both of them. Um, Alyssa, you know, we, she was always in my arms. So whenever she just fell asleep, you know, like she would eat and then fall asleep and she slept through most of the night. Um, one thing that a piece of advice, I don't know who gave it to me, but it's like, you're going to be tired with the newborn. So sleep when they sleep. So when she would nap, I would nap. <laughs> so we were, you know, she had the, she slept throughout most of the night and it was just, she was great. Yeah. I, I think part of that is because of the amount of regulation, co-regulation that she would get by you holding her too. Mm -hmm. And that, it, we offer that by giving, we're essentially giving a child our comfort and our body systems regulation by holding and touching them. And when we do that, they have, they can stay calm and they don't feel the stress around them because we're buffering them from that physically and sensorily. And uh, so it's a fantastic thing to think about that one of the other needs that we have is a relief from discomfort. We need to feel comfortable. We need to feel safe. And if we don't have those, then we can't rest as easily. 
and you were just talking about giving Alyssa like the most comfort and the, mo the most de-stressed environment you possibly could. And I know part of that was because of the fact that she'd been through so much, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And here she is, you know, it's amazing to think that a child with that level of medical involvement early on could sleep that well, but it's a testament to you following your intuition as a parent. That's really great. Thank you. How has it been different with Alina? Um, it hasn't, as far as the sleep goes, it hasn't been very different. Um, you know, she would still be held all the time. Um, even up to now, we do uh, co-sleeping. Like, I've tried it. I, ha I got them bunk beds. And so, you know, we're like, okay, well, let's try to sleep in our own bed. But she most always ends up in my bed, and it's always with me hugging her. And we call it squishing. I'm like, okay, I'm going to squish you. So, like, part of my body's on her. And so uh, she just... I, and she needs that now like she has to have somebody in bed with her so if it's not um Alyssa then it's me so right. I I created that up not a, not not on purpose but yeah I I don't want people to think that that's something that's a problem either though you know we with uh, our kids we followed their needs if the and part of them was showing that they were not comfortable or they were stressed by being alone we would i would stay in bed with finley my youngest son for example until he'd fall asleep and there were times when he was a, a toddler and he would toddle on into the room when he woke up and then he would sleep between his mother and i but he wouldn't sleep parallel he'd sleep perpendicular to the two of us forming <laughs> a giant h in the bed <laughs> and he would grab my wife's hair and he would dig his toenails into my back so we had a lot of fun then Jess, how has it been? So you said uh, Lacey's got the new bed. So has she been one that needs some co-sleeping at times, needs mom's comfort or dad's in the bed? During nap times, she does really good. During nighttime, not so much. Right. Last night, I was like, come on, we got to go to bed. No, I don't want to. I want to go to your bed. So, I mean, there's nights where she'll be in there all night. There's nights where it's just part of the night. She follows and, you know, her way into my room in the middle of the night. And then there's nights where she doesn't even make it there. But, you know... I know she needs it. Yeah. She is going through those emotional stressors right now with having a new baby in the house. Yeah. And she just needs that extra comfort. And, you know, at nighttime, she gets to snuggle up next to her mom and she needs it. And I'm okay with it because, yes, it gets uncomfortable when they do sleep with H style across your bed. <laughs> or, you know, I wake up and she's got her head towards my feet. You know, and she's kicking me in the face with her feet, but I get over it and flip her around and go back to sleep because I know that's where she wants to be and that's where it's making her happy at the moment. Yeah, that's what she needs, exactly what you said. And we, I think it's okay to pay attention to our children's needs, especially at those times when it comes to things like sleep, food, love, stimulation, uh, discomfort. Those are things that children don't, uh, manipulate around unless we make it uh, an issue and by making it an issue we'll talk about that but like with sleep if I made it an issue like you have to sleep in your bed at an inappropriate time at an inappropriate age uh, then it's going to become something that becomes a wedge between us had I done that with my youngest son he would have either had a really tense time in his bed unable to sleep or he would have come into our room uh, risking making dad mad uh, and neither of those feel really positive. 
So I don't want to make it an issue because then uh, he could make it an issue. And ultimately, I'm giving my power away as an adult when I'm saying to my child, here's how you make me mad. Get up out of bed and come into my room tonight. <laughs> and right. sometimes kids, because of the fact that it is predictable, they will say, well, I, I, I don't know how else to do this other than to uh, make this outcome happen because sitting here worrying about it is too stressful. So I just got to make the outcome happen. That's, that's easier and better for me than wondering if it's going to happen. Yeah. So it's, uh, we want to be sure that we don't put kids in those kinds of binds because then we have the potential to really detract from our relationships. Let's talk about food. That's the next one. And we've already kind of hinted at it as, as just how important that is in relation to sleep, as we mentioned, but food is a, is a huge one for infants. Um, and obviously, you know, folks encourage breastfeeding at very young ages. Some folks can do that. Some folks can't. I don't, I don't think this is an area where we want to shame anybody for how they operate or how it works best for their child. Again, I think our intuition has to guide us. Um, and how, does that, how has it guided you, Erica, with, with your girls when they're infants? What was the feeding like for them? Was it something that felt kind of natural? It was easy. Was it something more challenging as a result of Alyssa's uh, medical issues? Um, well, I know, you know, I was, I felt that breastfeeding was very important to me, but unfortunately, um, it just didn't work out for me. I pumped as long as I could, but um, I couldn't, the girls didn't latch, either one of them. Um, and I knew with Alyssa, with all her medical issues, I knew that that breast milk was super important. So like I said, I pumped as much as I could. Um, and so at, so at one point I did have to go to um, formula, which I, you know, I felt bad as a parent because I felt like I wasn't doing enough, but you know, just the body, my body just couldn't do what it was supposed to, I guess. So, um, yeah, and the same thing with Delina, you know, I just, I tried and she didn't latch. And so I pumped again, just like I did with Alyssa. Um, and she also had to put, be put on formula. So, right. but the feeding, um, it always went really well. Um, both girls were very good eaters. Yeah. And I mean, I know that that can be really disappointing when we don't feel like we can fulfill you our role. This thing. <laughs> is that little Alina? Yes, it is. <laughs> Tell her hi for us. Mr. Max says hi. Tell him I say hi also. Okay. Thank you, Archie. <laughs> He's so darling. Love her. Thank you. And I, I just, again, I think it's great that you could listen to your body, you could listen to your children, and you could reflect on what was the right thing to do for you. And that's awesome. Uh, because obviously, they're both very healthy girls with great appetites. Um, even Alyssa, despite her medical stuff uh, with her heart, she's doing great. Uh, she's an adorable, brilliant kid, as is Alina. And um, clearly, following the, your intuition and, and what your body and what your uh, your reflection was telling you was right on. Jessica, how's it been for you? The girls uh, as infants, um, what was their feeding like? Are they pretty good eaters? Yeah, um, I know with Lacey, we nursed until she was about two and a half years old. Uh -huh. um, and I made just what I needed to with her. And with Millie, I, everything is fine. And I oversupplied at first and it was just the, every single time it's just a different experience and right. 
I tried to reach out as much as I can to other moms in the community if they need help. And I know I'm not a lactation consultant or anything like that, but you know, it's okay if, you know, like I struggled with anxiety, which that takes down your milk supply. So it, I try to give as much experience to people as I can because breastfeeding is not a walk in a park. Right. <laughs> sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And right. They do really, really well. And if I were to have another one, which I don't plan on, <laughs> you know, it'd probably be a whole different story again. Well, I really appreciate that comment because every child is different in terms of our parenting experience. And I think that's an important lesson for us to get across during this entire series that we're doing. Uh, every Every kid is going to challenge us in new ways and we should be embracing that opportunity was it was it hard jessica to to think about things in a different way for you when you noticed those changes between the two girls oh yeah at first with lacy you know i struggled all the first month things am i making enough food like my milk supply seems like it's dropped what am i doing wrong and so i would reach out to public health here in town they have lactation consultants there and they would you know come over to the house and help me out reassure me and when it came around to millie i was oversupplying, which was causing a lot of issues with her, like, you know, choking and just gassy. And so it was 100% different than the time before. And I just try to utilize all of my resources as much as I could. And that's probably one of the reasons how I got through it was utilizing resources in town and making sure I was in contact on Facebook groups for breastfeeding moms and all different other things to make sure that if I had a question, there was a lot of people to answer it. Yeah, that's fantastic. What do you think it is? What is it about you, Jessica, that makes that you're so open to that kind of support? I'm not sure. (laughs) You know, I think maybe with being a um, home visitor at the early childhood center, I just, you know, I give that support to a lot of parents and not even parents that were in the program, you know, I would have families that come to me, oh, we know this person, and they're struggling with this, could you maybe talk to them if I give them your number, and I would always open, yeah, sure, that sounds great, give them my number, we'll talk about it, and with doing that so much, I think I just learned to, it's okay to let other people in and give you support and help you out with those things, because we do need it, like with Lacey, I struggled with such bad postpartum anxiety that I needed that, I needed other people to be like, you're doing good. It's okay. Yeah, you might not seem like you're making a lot of milk right now, but is she having wet diapers? Is she falling asleep and looking satisfied? Yeah, yeah, okay, see, you're doing a good job. And I needed that because if I wouldn't have had that, I wouldn't have gotten through it. Right. Boy, that is such a fascinating comment uh, because and maybe this is me speaking from my own insecure perspective to a certain extent, but I don't know that I'm as open to getting or asking for help. I know I wasn't meant years ago. I was not open to asking for or receiving help, uh, even though I needed it. But I think that's something I've admired about both of you when we've had these talks that you've talked about reaching out, staying connected to family, friends, and others who might be able to help you. And knowing that you don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be perfect. Nobody is to begin with. And part of doing things well is knowing that you can't do everything perfectly and being open to feedback. Uh, So it's what a gift to you and to your family to say, 
hey, there are other resources out there. And Erica, I know that you did that too. What was that experience like for you? Um, just asking for help was something that I, it, it was easy for me at that point because um, I had that support around me that told me like, it's okay to ask for help. Yeah. I do think it is a testament to just how our social realm of connections can be supportive for us and help us extend to that further. And that's a part of what we talk about when we uh, talk about the next need, which is love. So we talked about sleep, we talked about food. The third need that we're talking about today, again, not in any particular order, is love. And and whenever I start talking about this, I start seeing the pictures in my head of those, pardon me, those horrible experiments where they had monkeys that were raised by wire monkeys and just how disturbing that was for uh, monkeys uh, emotionally and uh, cognitively to be raised by non-living beings. And here we have children who are needing that kind of a connection. And Erica, you've done so well at talking about how you know, just holding the girls when they need to be held. Uh, that's such an expression of love to be there and to put their needs first. And I think that's the biggest thing that we can do as parents for infants is show them that their needs are important to us by our actions. Uh, Erica, what has that been like for you to think about putting, I know that you do this effortlessly, what's it like for you putting your children's needs ahead of your own? I've always, um... I've always thought that the, that was super important. Um, as I was growing up with my mother, I didn't get a lot of affection. Um, and I can literally count on one hand how many times I remember her saying, I love you. So I have made it a priority to show them um, how much I care and to have, you know, just to make sure that they have everything that they need. Um, yeah, it's always it's always been a huge priority for me. Yeah, you knew that the alternative and how hard that could be for somebody and you didn't want that for your kids. Now, where did you see it differently? Because uh, my belief is that if we're raised in a way that doesn't acknowledge some of these needs in a way that's helpful for us, we need to see it happen somewhere differently. Where did you see that, Erica? Um, I started seeing it when I moved in with my foster parents. Well, okay, I guess, okay, so my story is kind of unique. So I was raised in Mexico by my grandparents and I was the baby of the family. So, you know, I was coddled and all that stuff. And then it was just a huge when 360, whatever, um, moving in, I had to go back to my mom here in the United States. So for many years, um, there was a lot of abuse going on. And so then I ended up going to a group home and then foster care. Um, and so in foster care is where I really learned um, how kids should be treated. I learned how to talk to a person the right way, you know, not when you get in trouble to have consequences like, um, you know, being grounded, not just hit right away. Um, so yeah, I learned that from my foster parents. Um, and as much as I can remember from Mexico, there was a lot of love and a lot of care in that one. So 
It's nice that you had that foundation from your grandparents to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I remember having my son, first son, Keegan, and the adoration that I felt, the love that I felt for him was so powerful that I could tell that I was loved as an infant. It's almost like you can feel that coming through from your history to a certain extent. Uh, Jessica, what's it been like for you to, to show the love for your two girls? especially as infants, you know, that little warm bundle that you bring home. What's that love like? Right. It is nothing like I imagined it would be. Really? <laughs> you know, like when I had Lacey, I was just so careful and I never, ever put her down. And I, I mean, I'm just with Lacey, uh, with Millie. And my mom was just so wonderful growing up. She always showed affection. She always made sure that I knew that she was there and I can't necessarily say that for, you know, any like father figures, all of them I had in my life. Um, that was always rocky for me, but seeing both growing up, it made me realize when I would become a parent that that is one of the main things that I wanted to make sure my girls knew all the time. I, I set consequence, like, you know, like if something happens, they know what's going to happen, whether it's good or bad, but no matter what, they know that I'm going to be there and still loving them, even if something does happen. And I can, you know, I, there's days where Lacey says things that break my heart and I just have to sit there and remind her, you know, it's okay that that happened and I love you and I'm going to be here because I just know some of the things that happened to me when I was younger, it, I needed that. And sometimes I didn't always get it. Right. I was looking at some of our notes from our previous session as well. And what uh, this might even be from an exit interview that Erica and I did, but one of the things that can help us in interpreting our children's behaviors or their words, like when Lacey says something or when our toddler says something like, I hate you and you're the worst or whatever we can, it, it's really like we've talked about with every single one of these session recordings, we should validate the feeling. I can really hear that you are so mad at me. You are really angry at me. And by conveying that level of understanding, that is a form of love. And Jessica, the other thing that you're describing is how you set boundaries and expectations. And that is another form of love. If you, if folks who are listening to this, if you get a chance, I'm going to do a Brene Brown plug here, but we use one of her videos in our certificate program where she talks about boundaries and how setting boundaries is actually a really uh, beautiful act of love because you're telling people what you expect from them if they, if they indeed want to show that they care about you. And if I say to you, this is how you show you care about me, I'm giving you the roadmap. And mm -hmm. that's what you're doing, Jessica. You're giving her the roadmap for how to show that she cares for you and for the roadmap for how you show that you care for her. Yeah. Erica, was it challenging at all as um, as the, your girls were moving into toddlerhood to set those boundaries? Um, those kind of loving boundaries? <laughs> uh, I think it was a little more difficult with Alina than it was Alyssa. Really? How so? Yes. Um, because with Alyssa, like she we legit thought that she was going to be our only child. And so we just spoiled her 
Yeah. You know what I mean? And so then when Alina came, we're like, well, maybe <laughs> maybe we shouldn't just let her do whatever she wants. And so, yeah, it was a little more difficult. And then trying to navigate the relationship between Alyssa and Alina, I was like, why does she get to do that? I don't. So, yeah, it was a little more difficult with Alina. Yeah. And it, because, again, I, you've learned some I things. And mm-hmm. you've learned I'm how to. <laughs> there she is. You've learned how important it is to think about the ramifications of of how we treat toddlers. And one of the more important things that toddlers learn is how to accept no for an answer, (laughs) which is not easy for many of us toddlers that are 52 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Jessica, uh, what is it looking like for you in terms of setting those boundaries? Well, I know you're not doing that with Millie yet, but... um, Talk a little bit about how you know when she's just kind of needing mom time. Who, Millie or Lacey? Lacey? Millie, Millie. Millie. Um, hey, she's just a mommy's girl. <laughs> I think she knows that that's where her food comes from. So, but you know, I can just tell, like, she'll be good with other people. And then all of a sudden she'll start to fuss. And then she gets to this point where she's like, listen, you're not my mom. And yeah, you might be able to get me to calm down a little, but that's who I want. And I'll take her and she'll stop crying and just kind of ah, sigh. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, there you are. I haven't gone anywhere. I'm still here. It's okay. But, you know, she has to venture out and be okay with other people too. <laughs> that's a great segue to our next need, which is stimulation. And when you have very intelligent kids, like all, th- all three of us have, <laughs> Uh, and we're so blessed with that. You'll have children who need to get outside of their little sphere. So I get out of mom's lap for a little bit and I go experience something new and someone new. And what we'll also see is that children who are really, you know, developing their cognitive skills well, they'll get bored with that quickly. So she probably won't be able to, you know, linger, linger in somebody's arms if they are a stranger or somebody who's not familiar to her because it'll get boring to a certain extent for her at some point. And she won't trust them enough to try things that will be novel or new. So she's got to go back to mom who can help her experiment, right? Yep. (laughs) Yeah. So let's think about that, that term stimulation. And this I think is one of the more challenging ones when we get into toddlerhood and preschool, but for infants, we actually had uh, an old sedan that we would drive to Denver with our oldest son, Keegan, as an infant. And the problem with that car was that uh, it didn't have air conditioning. <laughs> so when you drive into Denver in August and uh, the temperature is about 100 degrees outside and your child is sweating and melting in the back seat, he's not very comfortable. So we would, that need we couldn't meet. We couldn't relieve his discomfort because we didn't have air conditioning. The windows are wide open. We're trying to cool him off. There's just no way to do it. So we, we would go into using one of the other needs, which is he needed stimulation, and that could supersede. These needs can supersede each other once in a while. Like sometimes a child will eat so that when they're tired, or sometimes I'll eat when I'm thirsty, or I'll eat when I'm tired, or I'll eat when I'm bored. So, okay, I like to eat, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But a child like Keegan, we would carry little um, little surprises for him, little new things, like there would be a new toy or something flashy or something new that he could kind of look at and hopefully 
uh, put some his, of his attention into so that he could stop thinking about the fact that he was melting into his car seat. Uh, but th let's talk about what, how you folks use stimulation. Have you had that kind of a situation where, you know, you've got a child who's obviously uncomfortable or you've got a child that's hard to figure out what they need and suddenly you realize they kind of needed to see or do or feel something different. Erica, how's that been for your girls? It's funny though, because your um, AC story, um, when Alina, when Alyssa got out of the hospital, we had a very loud, loud car. <laughs> <laughs> the, the muffler was super loud and uh, no AC either. Oh, so man. yeah, so Alyssa in July, August, or yeah, July driving from Denver to Cheyenne. Wow. That wasn't, that was, that felt, <laughs> that was a horrible drive. Yeah. And then Andrew's doing like two miles an hour in the Denver traffic yeah. because of the newborn baby. Like, yeah. Um, so as far as stimulation, um, I always got really good tips um, with uh, working at Stride or being around Stride people. Um, and so with Alyssa, it was easy because they told me what to do. Like, okay, you know, this is helpful this is what you should do and so I, I had a lot of good um, resources with Alina I just I don't know I just it came natural like it just yeah I don't know <laughs> so to let folks know stride is a developmental preschool that serves children with special needs and Alyssa because of her medical condition received early intervention services there and so you'd have like an occupational therapist or a physical therapist or a special <laughs> educator talk with you about the ways that you could help her through some of those difficult times. Yes, and it was, um, yeah, like especially after her heart surgery, like the way we would have to hold her and things like that was, um, it was scary, but to know how to do it was um, super important. And so that kind of made us a little cautious about other people holding her. Right. So, yeah. And she couldn't do tummy time for quite a while, could she? Exactly. Yeah. And then the way she would be have to be picked up instead of under the arms, the way we pick up babies, right? I, we had to put her arms together, okay. like on her body and kind of just like clutch that way or, you know, pick up from the neck to the bottom. So, yeah, it was really, um, you had to really think about how to hold her and things like that. So, right. Yeah. And she, she really couldn't get a lot of the stimulation that's typical for a, an infant that age. Mm -hmm. So what types, can you think about the ways in which you might have done some things differently with her as an infant compared to Alina? Like Alina, I bet she was crawling as soon as she could see the floor. She was, it was, and yeah, we would just let her go. And it would be funny because when she first started crawling, she used her head a lot. And so <laughs> we were like- Alina did? I, yes, she would like, <laughs> she would um like push her butt up and her legs up and so she would just slide with on her head and i'd have to like sit her up that way she didn't give herself rug burn but i have lift that giant melon off the floor exactly <laughs> i even i even have videos oh gosh <laughs> but, i need to see that yes they're hilarious so but yeah you know with her i was less cautious about what i let her do and what kind of things um yeah, she just, and because of that, she's quite the risk taker now. 
Right, right. Like nothing just faces her. She tried to like just jump right into the ocean. We're like, no, like get back here. So. And with Alyssa, was it? Uh, did you find yourselves like taking her around and take walking her through environments or helping her move places because she couldn't do a lot of the early movements herself? or getting a lot of other kind of ways to distract her or give her a you know stimulation with toys or what did that, what did that look like for her mm, there was a lot of reading okay i did a, i did a lot of reading to her um she did have a lot of toys she's always had a lot of toys um yeah when we were out we would instead of having her in the stroller, we would carry her with us. Does right. that make sense? Like yeah. holding her? Um, yeah, but we never stopped going to places. Um, like, okay. especially like when we would have to go to Denver, we would always make like this huge thing. Um, as you know, we would borrow your car <laughs> and he's like, don't, you know, don't worry about the cats or anything like that. We would end up taking her to like the aquarium or we just take long drives. Like we just always made a, a huge thing of it. So we would always um, just show her movies that were around and, right. you know, like Casa Blanca in Denver and stuff like that. So, or Casa Bonita. Yeah. yeah. So things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, so, and I think you had a lot of lap time with her, obviously, but you made the most of it with the reading, with toys, with different physical stimulation, even helping her as her chest, her sternum was healing. You were doing different stretches and even some mm -hmm. massage with her, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, the occupational therapists were always very good at, at showing me and, um, you know, everything that I things that I could do to help her. Um, she wasn't, um, she was behind developmentally for a little while, but she caught right up as soon as like her, as soon as her body healed and everything, so. Yeah. Uh, Jess, what's it like for you? How do you know when your uh, little one, Millie, is bored and she needs some stimulation? She starts crying. <laughs> <laughs> she really does, you know, like. Earlier, we were out in the garage, and she was in her swing, and she was just talking and talking and talking and yelling. And I'm not sure what she was, like, fixated on looking at, but she thought it was really interesting. And then all of a sudden, she was done. <laughs> um, yeah. Hey, I just realized I'm by myself, and I was talking to this thing on the wall, but it's not talking back. That's not my mom. Wait, I need somebody to pick me up. <laughs> and that's right. really what it is. It's, she'll be really good and carried away, and all of a sudden you know, she's not, and that's just, you know, meeting her needs. <laughs> yep. She needs me to come get her. And that's the way she tells me. Yeah. She's basically saying I've interacted with this thing on the wall, the two or three ways I can take me somewhere else. Right. <laughs> new, please. Entertain me. Chop, chop. <laughs> but it's so true. We're trying to pay attention to the needs that are being demonstrated to us. And I'm, I'm going to give us an exercise here. I want you to, to just, you could just think out, think this through if you want, or you can write something down. I'm going to pause the recording here in a second, but I want you to think my baby is crying and what's, what's the first thing you do? Second, third, fourth, just kind of think about how you respond initially. Maybe we can just go through it, you know, as we're talking here, but uh, Erica, let's say Alyssa was crying as a baby. What's the first thing you do? Uh, check the diaper. Yeah. So the need that you're addressing there is relief from discomfort. Discomfort is something that it seems kind of like, 
okay, well, what, what the heck is that about? It's not just about comfort because relief from discomfort is actually helping a child not have to deal with uh, excessive levels of cortisol in their brain. And cortisol is something that actually hurts brain structures. It actually breaks down brain structures. So if we have a child that experiences a lot of stress, which is what we get as a result of discomfort, their brain can begin to degenerate to a certain extent. And they start to become more uh, engaged in fight, flight, or freeze, as opposed to being able to learn and explore and, and have curiosity and persistence, which are things we really want to see from infants and toddlers. So think about that in terms of our first response is to look at relief from discomfort, because what we uh, hear from a cry is that they're uncomfortable. Right, Erica? Correct. Right. So the diaper's clean. What's next? Um... If I'm already holding her, then the bottle. All right. So is she hungry? Is mm -hmm. there discomfort from hunger? And does she need food? So you're dealing with two needs there, potentially. Relief from discomfort because of the hunger pains and food being in need. All right. Mm -hmm. She doesn't want the bottle. What's next? Um, talking to her, like singing to her, trying to soothe her. Hey, hey, now we're into stimulation. That's wonderful. You've already addressed four needs in four actions. Well, almost all five, because the uh, love is also demonstrated by holding and singing to her. So look at that. You've addressed five needs in four actions. Isn't that phenomenal? Right. You're pretty. You're a pretty good parent. Well, thank you. <laughs> Way to go. Jessica, how's the, how does it go for you? Do you check the diaper first? Uh, with Millie, it's, uh, it's kind of different. Usually it's I'm out of her line of sight. And it's oh, like, okay. hey, I'm here. And then a light bulb goes off. Oh, you're still there. <laughs> okay. And then I oh. just keep going through. Like, you know, it. Then I check diaper because she is not a kid to like her diaper to be wet. And then right. usually it's she's hungry, so we're gonna eat. And then it, you know, if she's not hungry right at that point, we play a little. And then usually she falls asleep. She, you know, she's only three months old, so it's usually pretty fast for her. <laughs> Isn't that great though? And how simple yeah. it is that infants make it for us. But you said at first you'll just get in her line of sight. What need do you think it is that you're addressing there? Is it uh, the discomfort or the stress or is it the love? I think both. Yeah. You know, she's in that, she doesn't understand when you go out of sight. Yeah. At this developmentally. So right. it's just knowing that you're there. You know, it's like the same if I have to go and take a shower in the morning and she's in her bouncer. If I shut the curtain, like sometimes she'll just like break down and start crying. I'm gone. Where have you gone? Right. She doesn't understand. I'm still there. So I have to, you know, get in her face, make her see that I am there and calm right. her down. And she's fine. Yeah. I don't know. Have, have either of you seen those still face videos where a parent will be interacting with a, an infant and making eye contact and smiling and even verbalizing a little bit? And then they'll show their face just completely still and the infant cannot regulate and they become so distressed in that process. Have either of you seen those? I we'll have to include those in our um, flyer that we put together for this because it's, it's fascinating to watch. I'll send you both a link. But there was one I saw, which was really cool to see it with fathers. Because of course there's a tendency to think, obviously our kids are gonna be attached to their moms. If, if you're the one providing the breastfeeding and you're taking care of those initial needs and hopefully dad is doing his part too. But you know, if you're the 
breastfeeding early on, then you're going to develop a relationship really quickly with the child. And uh, that's a gift for both of you. And but we would to see that fathers have that same impact by having that interactive uh, facial expression and then having no a still face and how disruptive that can be for a child's regulation is is really uh, interesting to see. And it's scary to a certain extent, because then you think, what is it? What what does this mean for those children whose parents aren't sure how to do this? And that can be really uh, really challenging for some parents to feel like they can relate to their child. Uh, has that ever been a, a challenge for either of you to feel like, gosh, I'm just not sure what to do here. Erica, was there ever a time like that for you? Um, I'm sure there was. I just can't remember any on the top of my head. Well, good. It wasn't that pressing. Then. Oh, no, 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 no. There is a time that one just popped up. For some reason, we were Andrew and I were driving around in our um, the loud car because um, sometimes that's that would be the only way that she would fall asleep was driving around. And I think it was like the humming of the the, the muffler. But one time we had her and uh, she just wouldn't stop crying. Um, you know, we checked her diaper, we hugged her, we went for a ride, and. Um, we were driving around and driving around and she still wouldn't quit crying. And um, so finally we just pulled over at an auto zone or whatever in a parking lot. And this was like almost the middle of the night by then. And I'm um, just in the parking lot, just holding her and trying to shush her and trying to, you know, just balance and stuff. So that was one of the nights that we were like, we didn't know exactly what was wrong. Um, she eventually calmed down and fell asleep. But that was like for me and Andrew were like, oh my God, we don't know what to do. Like. Yeah. <laughs> what what do you think it was ultimately i don't we never figured it out yeah. i think she just finally just tired herself out because yeah. you know we we gave her her toys i held her i sang to her you know and even the famous car ride with the muffler <laughs> and so <laughs> so we just I, we never figured out exactly what happened it, it didn't happen like that again but i do remember that one specific time yeah it happens like that and, and sometimes we never figure it out and I had that same experience with my young, my oldest son when he was an infant and I got to stay home with him for a few weeks uh, of paternity leave. And he just, there's one day he just cried and cried and cried. And I could not figure out what was going on. Clean diaper, well fed, uh, it seemed like maybe he needed a nap, but he couldn't fall asleep. Um, and there was really no rhyme or reason to it. Uh, there were a couple days like that where I was just at my wits end. And I remember, you know, just getting so frustrated that I didn't know what to do. And I think I should know. I'm a per person who works with kids, my goodness. And uh, no, I, I'm not going to know. Uh, and there's times when I, I just going to have to take a break from the child, give him a break from me. It might mean that he cries for a little bit, but he'll live through it. And so will I. Uh, Jessica, has there been a time like that for you? Oh, yeah. You know, they go through that purple crying period, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. There is a, that's, I think just think exactly what you said. It's very important to remember, even if you set down your kid and you walk away and they're in a safe spot and they're crying, it will be okay. Yeah. You take the break that you need and come back to the situation because you don't want it to be where you're overstimulated and things get out of habit. You know, it, things go worse than what they are. And when you're heightened and frustrated, your kids feed off of it. Right. And Such I can tell point. that. Yeah. With Lacey, you know, I'll get upset. She's upset. 
all get mad and she'll feed off of it and then things go south and that's you know well i just i tap out i'll look at my husband and say i'm tapping out and i'll leave the situation because i know that we're both overstimulated at that point and it's not going anywhere so and if you're not in the position that you can just tap out that's when you do you take a break and even if that means you give your child a popsicle and you go outside and they sit down and the backyard with their popsicle and you just kind of get out of the line of sight of them but a minute to breathe that's okay i've been there i've done it doesn't make me a bad parent it helps me become a better parent because it helps me regulate to help her yeah. and go back and work through the situation such a good comment because when we have little ones that look to us for their regulation and we aren't regulating well that's going to be disruptive for both of us absolutely uh, it makes me think, I also have done some group work and I, I want to make this point because our, our infants are really sensory beings. They rely on us a lot for feeling kind of sensory, the sensory calm that we can provide because of our experience and knowledge. But we also can provide them uh, kind of sensory novelty at times that can be really helpful. And there was one time when my son was crying and we were, I was pacing in the living room and just trying to figure out what to do. And I just went outside. And then he starts looking up through the tree at the, the, the beautiful clouds and, and sun above us and could see these great shadows. And he just calmed down immediately because he was getting a level of stimulation that was helping him focus on something other than maybe the discomfort that he was having from his, you know, the, the fecal matter that was developing in his lower intestine. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. And so I, we, and I, we've even used it in group work with adults. Uh, there was one time we were working with the group and we had somebody who was really having a difficult time with some panic attack and an anxiety. And uh, we had a nearby freezer and we got a, we called it the therapeutic burrito. So we got out a frozen burrito and we gave it to him and we had to hold it on, hold on to it both hands. And he, because of the sensory change for him, he could kind of, calm his brain down enough to begin to think more logically and use his rational executive functioning skills to start answering questions and thinking about the panic that was being created in him by his thoughts in a different way. So think about that with our infants, that sometimes we can give them a nice kind of, not a shock, but a sensory change that really elicits uh, their calming or their focus on a piece of stimulation that will help us then kind of get regrounded. It kind of reminds me of when we were talking before, breaking the, the trance. Yeah. You know, it, and I, it really is. I had a mom call me a few weeks ago and her baby was just crying and crying and crying. And I could tell she was overstimulated and you know, mom was having a hard time. And I was like, you know what? I'm on a walk. How about I swing by your house? And she came outside and I took baby and I, I broke that trance. We got her calmed down and she just relaxed and melted. Love it. Because she went from the inside <laughs> to the outside relax and then what's fine you know like she needed that different stimulation to get her through what she was working with and to distract her from what was going on before absolutely great example wow and again that, that speaks to the strengths of social connections which is a big piece what what ultimately provides all of us uh connection to these different uh, needs like stimulation love relief um, and that's just such a great example. Thanks, Jessica. 
I want to thank you both again for joining me. This has been a lot of fun. I think we're we're coming up with some good topics here lately. I'm not sure what our next one will be, but I hope that I can get you both back. Um, so thanks, Erica. Thanks, Jessica. And uh, we'll look forward to talking again soon, I hope. See you, Jessica. Bye. See you, Erica. Bye. Bye.